You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So I loved this conversation with Cassie Holmes, who's a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where she's an award-winning teacher and researcher. Her work in the intersections of time and happiness has been widely published in leading academic journals and featured in such outlets as NPR, The Economist, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and more. And her new book is called Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. You're really going to enjoy this one. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Cassie Holmes, welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you share two personal experiences that really drive the content of this book. One is on a late night train ride in 2013 when you seriously considered quitting everything because you were feeling you had no time to enjoy your life. And the other was shortly before you were to be married. Um, can you tell us what happened there? Which one of those? <laughs> the second one. <laughs> the second one? Oh, I man. Think we, I think we all get the everything's too much. I need to quit especially now, I don't know that there's a person who's hearing this who's not going to be like, oh, I get that. Yes. Um, but I do want to touch back to that story because I yes. think that the conclusion from it is something that um, was informative for me at that stage and I think can be for many of us. But I am yeah. happy to dig right into the more awkward of this story. <laughs> That's where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> um, so I, I study happiness and in particular, how do we invest our time um, to be happier and more fulfilled? Uh, and the, my sort of interest in happiness as an academic pursuit stemmed from this story that you're asking about, which was 
basically the um it's interesting uh dan gilbert has a wonderful book stumbling on happiness and mm-hmm. he sort of creates this thought experiment of like think of the most devastating thing how unhappy would it make you and that example of the most devastating thing that he gave was if on your wedding day you are sort of abandoned at the altar wouldn't that be the most devastating thing and granted I was not at the altar but I was two weeks before adjacent altar adjacent car packed with my wedding dress honeymoon bathing suits um on my way down to san diego which is my hometown where the wedding was going to be so i grew i am a happy person so there are inputs into our happiness um part of it is our inherent disposition and i am a lucky duck in the sense that i have a cheery disposition and i grew up perpetually being cheery and so much so that people would sort of write me off as, you know, naive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it was fair because not only did I have, was I lucky enough to have a cheery disposition, but I also, my circumstances tended to be quite happy. Um, Mm -hmm. And in one, in this particular case, meeting, you know, Prince Charming, which this love story started in, um, when I was 12 in sixth grade and my family was living abroad and I had this like supreme crush on this guy and it was mutual, but we're in sixth grade. So we never actually spoke. We only sort of smiled at each other shyly from across the playground. And um, when I was in my uh, mid twenties, this guy reached out um, and I recognized his name immediately, of course, because he was the crush that I had in sixth grade And from there, we uh, met, we met again, Um, we dated, we moved cross country together to live together so we could each go to grad school. And we got engaged to get married. Mm -hmm. And I spent a full year planning this amazing wedding that would be in San Diego with all of our family and friends flying in from all over the country. And I was so excited for this perfectly laid future, you know, of this sort of cheery life that I was living. And I was, as I was pulling out of the driveway, heading down to San Diego to, um, you know, get the wedding festivities sort of underway and final preparations he calls me on my cell phone and he's like Cassie I'm not ready to get married and I'm like what <laughs> there's what are you talking about and that so my cheeriness was shattered in an instant right. um and uh I was devastated and I didn't know what to do so I continued to like pull out of the driveway and drive to San Diego like sobbing I stopped at this gas station and I was sobbing so hard that these poor people around me were like are you okay and I was like through my tears I'm like I'm fine I'm fine sort of like but I wasn't fine no um and that was uh I had started in my um, PhD studies to explore happiness and what are what are the inputs and knowing that uh, our natural disposition is one um, and that our circumstances, these things that we think will have a bigger effect than they do, like 
income level, attractiveness, marital status, (laughs) whether or not you get married um, when you think you're going to or not, um, have an effect, but a smaller effect than we often predict. And then there's this chunk that has an effect. And this is the part that I sort of felt found solace in at that time, but have continued to sort of develop my career around of that there are things that we can do, ways of spending time, ways of thinking that are under our control. If we just know how should we be spending our time, how should we be approaching our time and thinking to increase our happiness. And so that sort of set me off to choose happiness. So we do have choice in how happy we feel in the day to day. And when I talk about when I use the word term happy, or happiness, what I'm talking about is how we feel in the day to day, how much positive emotion and lack of negative emotion, as well as an evaluative, like when thinking about your life overall, how satisfied are you? Um, Those two things coupled are um, how happy we are. And that is what happier hour sort of, and my career has been about is figuring out what based off of data, not just, you know, people's opinions and, you know, sometimes unfounded advice. um, How can we be spending our time to be happier? Um, It's interesting. This wasn't in my notes initially, but I had this epiphany as I was, uh, as you were telling that story and thinking about time. Uh, um, And you're sending your kid to improv classes. And so one of the things that you're going to realize or, 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 you know, pick up as you enter that world is all the different exercises can be used um, in a variety of different ways, depending on where the individual is putting their point of focus. So it's all about point of focus. And like, and then, so if you, if your point of focus is yourself, if your point of focus is the other, if your point of focus is the game, if your point of focus is someone else's success, and, and, and there's ways that you as a, as are really, uh, great teachers can, it could be the same game and you could learn a whole other thing because you're practicing attention. And I don't think we live in a world where other than maybe doing some mindfulness work and some other things, and, and, and frankly, and, and I think that mindfulness work is very important, but the thing I love about improv is we don't live, the world we live in is n- not silent. <laughs> it's, it's Absolutely. noisy. And so our work is all about, I call it noisy group mindfulness. Uh, but I think that idea, and you write in the books, you say, quote, being time poor makes us more depressed, more stressed, and more emotionally exhausted, end quote. And I just know this because so many people come to our training are a little bit broken. And I think what they're finding is take, take my mind and, and, and give me some time back. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that... Um, for our happiness, it is a question of mindset, which is really a, the story of attention. What are you yeah. paying attention to as well as what you're doing? So it's it's both of those things. And so we need to think about what are the activities that we should be engaging in? But even beyond that, where what should we be thinking about during those activities? Mm-hmm. And the answer from a happiness perspective is what you're doing. It's paying attention, being in the moment. Um, And I talk a lot about that in the book from different angles, and I'm happy to sort of dig into any of them, Um, is, you know, we are are 
so many of us are time poor. Um, and I have uh, recent data that we've collected uh, among a nationally representative sample of Americans uh, uh, measuring time poverty. So time poverty, again, being this acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And we found that almost half of Americans report being time poor. Um, and this is bad because it has really negative ramifications. And that quote that you just shared of mine, it, we show that it makes us unhappy. We also show yeah. that it makes us less kind, less willing to take the time to spend on others. Um, it makes us less healthy. Um, but also in this sort of culture of busyness, we are so often in terms of attention, not paying attention to what we're doing because we're planning for what's next. Right. Um, we're thinking about what's next. What are like that sort of constant litany of to-dos that's running through our mind that pulls us out of the m current moment we're spending? And, you know, this question of burnout that we are all, not all, so many are suffering from sort of following the pandemic. It is um, pulling us out of just being able to enjoy and be in the present moment. Um, and there's work that shows the sort of detrimental effects of being distracted, of having our minds wander. Um, and I love um, the the improv uh, sort of philosophy because it forces you to be attentive to the present moment and the people you're with. And given that we don't have a lot of time and are enough time to spend on the things that we want, when we are spending on time on the things that we want, you better get the most out of it. And the way you do yeah. that is to pay attention. Uh, I led a workshop a couple weeks ago in Sonoma, which was awesome uh, for a bunch of learning professionals. And one of the exercises I had them do was based on the work we developed at the University of Chicago. And it's this exercise called Universal Unique, where you just have uh, people partner up and one person um, uh, tells people how people grocery shop, how you, the universal you, and they do that for about a minute. And then we have them uh, think about it a little bit and then they say how they grocery shop. And what, when they do that, they're self-disclosure and, and they're recognized. Everyone afterwards was like, why was that so different? Like I learned all this stuff about you and I connected and you're laughing and like, and you talk about that in the book where you say, quote, a vital feature in the development of close relationships is reciprocal and escalating self-disclosure. And I'm talking about grocery shopping. I'm not talking about like deep down, but even that gets us huh. at a better plane than, than most of us are operating right now. Absolutely. And there is a wonderful exercise that I share in the book and I have my students do. So um, I teach uh, and have developed and teach a class for MBAs at UCLA called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design, um, which is sort of the basis of Happier Hour. And I have them do a bunch of exercises. And in the class where I'm talking about the vital, critical role of social connection. Mm -hmm. um, and I can share lots of research about just how important it is. I have them do this exercise. It's 15 minutes, so not a lot of time, but the impact of it is amazing. They make a friend and mm -hmm. making a friend is so powerful. Um, 
And these are, you know, it's a classmate. So they knew the person before, but they feel closer, more connected. And what the task is doing is basically for 15 minutes, the first five minutes, they ask, I give them a set of questions and they ask the question to the person, listen to their answer. And then that person asks them the question and the answer. The beginning questions are those sort of like get to know you questions that, you know, tend to be what fill our conversations as you like meet someone at a cocktail party. Like, what's your name? What do you do? Like, why did you decide to come to Anderson? Or, you know, why are you taking an improv class? Like, you know, the stuff that you just sort of have to get through. Then the next um, five minutes is uh, digging a little bit deeper. Um, And it might even be something as inane as like, how do you grocery shop? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what's a hobby that you enjoy doing? Um, It's really sort of sharing an experience in a very um, sort of concrete, real way. But still no stakes. It's, it, it is low stakes. Um, and it's so surprising that um, we so rarely just sort of ask those questions yeah, right. that are about you. It's uh-huh. not about like people. It is about you and yep. your experience. Um, and then the last uh, eight minutes is a deeper set of questions and a more revealing, more disclosive set mm-hmm. of questions like, what is your biggest fear? What is your gr- greatest source of pride? What's your happiest childhood memory? Um, these are like, they're not off limit questions. It's just right. so rare do we actually get to those um, revealing and disclosive and connecting questions. And at the end of the 15 minutes, and this is an empirically validated task um, that was conducted or is developed by researchers, is people do feel closer and more connected. And through my experience of watching my students and my experience of actually doing it with a student, um, myself, when there was one day an odd number of students in the class, within 15 minutes, a girl who I knew as my student, she was outspoken, so I actually thought I had a good sense of who she was. She, I have a lifelong friend from Mm -hmm. that 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, and we are still in touch. Um, So... All to say that it's not just paying attention, but it's actually asking the right questions and listening um, to the answers of another person. Because what friendship is, it is knowing and being known. Um, and so, yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. And specifics. So, I mean, this is, and this, this crosses over into why in terms of comedy. I mean, comedy is not funny when it's vague. Um, comedy is funny when it's specific because then it has the benefit of also being true often. That's what we're laughing at with this sort of shared laugh. And the same goes for our relationships. And I always love the phrase, and I've said on here a bunch, the shortest distance between two people is a laugh. And I think if we can <laughs> do that together, like the, the pro-social benefits are off the charts uh, and, and, and the opportunities for, for collaboration and extension and all those good things and, and, and the studies around health. Two. Um, all right. But you also have data around what are the most enjoyed activities and the most negative activities in the book. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I will happily share with you. And before yeah. I do, uh, with respect to the role of laughter, I was listening to um, your episode with Catherine Price and yes. she was talking about fun. And she, I, I actually forget whether it was you or her, <laughs> was um, saying that. Someone who is fun is someone who is 
ready and able to laugh. You don't necessarily have to be funny. And I felt so validated because I am the <laughs> least funny person, but I am always the ready first to laugh. To laugh. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I, my funny friends enjoy me because I feel, I think I'm actually very validated. You're a very good them. audience. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. We're you're you're immediately booked on all all sessions. <laughs> um, so yes, to your question. So we, so far, what we've talked about is paying attention during the time that you spend. And now the question is, what are the activities that we should be spending our time on? Yeah. And there is researchers that are looking at you know what are those activities that tend to be the most positive. They use time tracking research. So um, tracking over the course of people's days, what are they doing and how are they feeling while doing that activity? And with that data, you can find out on average, what are those activities that tend to be associated with the most positive emotion? What are those activities that tend to be associated with the most negative emotion? The activities that tend to be associated with the most positive are socially connecting activities. So spending time with family and friends or through physical intimacy. Um, Exercise is also one. Um, The activities that tend to be associated with the most negative emotion are commuting. So getting to and from work, Mm -hmm. maybe not surprising. Work, which is (laughs) actually a bummer because we spend so much of our waking lives working. And if those hours are associated with most negative emotion. That's a sad statement, but we can address that in a little bit of how to fix that, as well as housework. Um, But of course, that's based off of averages. So it's averaging across people. um, And I would happily report that I am someone who actually finds quite a bit of joy in my work. Mm -hmm. And But also it's averaging across um, sort of instances of a given activity. So for work, for example, it's not like every hour of work is fun. There are parts of work that are fun and parts of work that are not. So to make it more useful, this data, what I have my students do, and I walk through um, it within happier hour of collecting your own personal data. So tracking your own time over mm-hmm. the course of two weeks, and I say two weeks, you could do it for one week, but two weeks is a sort of more complete snapshot of the activities that fill your time. Track, write down, what are you doing every half hour? And on a 10-point ten, ten scale, how happy do you feel? And not just sort of like, is it enjoyable, but sort of happy, uh, how satisfying does it feel? How meaningful does it feel? So overall sort of positivity. And with that data, you can look for yourself, what are the activities that tend to be associated that you rate as most happy? What are those activities for you that you rate as least happy? You know, if you're deconstructing as you're writing down your activities, you want to say not just work, but you want to say what you're doing for work so that you can pull out what are those hours of your workday or those activity work activities that are more positive than negative. In addition to identifying for you what are your most positive, happy, and least happy activities, you can also see how much time you're spending on your various activities. So you can identify, for instance, like some of my students, that they're spending quite a bit of time on activities that are not required and that they think of as fun that actually are getting very mediocre ratings. And what typically falls into this bucket is passive screen time, whether it shows up as scrolling social media or whether it shows up as watching TV. 
Mm-hmm. And there is some TV that people actually view as or experience as very positive, and t- that tends to actually be the first hour of your watching session. But as hour two and hour three, four of a binge session continues, actually the enjoyment of that activity wanes. Um, but with this data, you can identify it's like your own personal data set for you. What, how should you be spending your time? What are, and often, again, looking, there's in, insight into the amount of time you're spending in particular ways. So like my students who are super time poor, right? They are getting their MBA on top of a lot of them have full-time jobs. Some of them have families. Many of them have partners. You know, they have other stuff that is filling their days, but they're like, oh my gosh, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have enough time yet. They're spending 15 hours on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're on TikTok. And they're we, spending we, yeah. like a half hour, if at all, having dinner with uh, a friend because they're like, oh, I don't have time. But that dinner with a friend gets a 9 or 9.5 rating, whereas the time on TikTok, they've given it a 4 or a 5. And that is very concrete. You know, you talk yeah. about in detail, which is very useful and not in this case funny. Um, it shows you like, okay, I should be pulling time away from the passive screen time or TikTok time and redistributing it to activities that truly do bring you joy. There, it's funny. So, you know, co- when COVID happened uh, and, and, it, and commuting stopped for a while, that was a very net positive, like the initial part of that. But then what I noticed is when we started coming back to the office, my group that I work with, um, we all call each other on our commute. Like, and, and we end up having a conversation until we drive in the parking lot. Like, I'm going to lose you in the signal because I'm here. And they're like, okay, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And I hadn't thought about like why we do that. And I'm like, I, I don't think it was a conscious decision of like, oh, this will make us happier. Um, but we know, we know when we have busy days, we're not going to have 20 minutes to like bowl with each other, which yeah. is what those conversations are. And you're making fun of each other and doing those things. And then the other thing I was thinking about is with regard to, I, so, so you in the book sort of lay out the, these things for us to do as, as readers. <clears throat> and I was noticing like, yeah, I had to code my credit card the other day and that's not a thing I enjoy doing. But I also yesterday got to drive 10 minutes over to this brewery that wants to make a second city beer. And I got, we just, just he took us on a tour of the brewery and we did a beer tasting and this like, How fun. Oh, it was the best. I'm just like, I can't believe my job lets me like drink beer and hang out at this brewery at three 30 in the afternoon. It was the, and so totally. it's like, and, and I think I could draw that experience. Like it, it evens out the coding of the credit card. Yeah. It's actually really smart. And it's a strategy um, that's called bundling. So, mm-hmm. you know, our least happy activities tend to be commuting. Why is it so unhappy? Well, it, because it feels like a waste. You're sort of, it's a waste of time. You're waiting to get through it. The time itself is not useful, but what you've done is you've bundled it with something that's really important, which is connecting with your colleagues and, you know, like, through your humor, your chit chat, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and that draws on Katie's work, right? Totally. Yeah. Katie yeah. Milkman um, in the bundling temptation bundling. And it's such a simple insight, um, but ha- it's so 
easy to implement and therefore very effective. Um, and so whether it's by commuting, how do you make that uh, more worthwhile time? Well, you can do it by calling your colleagues. You can do it by calling your friends. You can do it by listening to interesting podcasts. You can do it by mm-hmm. listening to an audiobook. You know, when in our life of feeling time poor, when I, I have people sort of complete the sentence and you can sort of do this for yourself, I don't have time to. People are very able to complete that sentence. And one of the things that people don't have time to do and wish they did is read for pleasure. Mm. If you bundle your commute time, which for the average American is a half hour going in, a half hour coming home. So that's an hour a day. If you were to listen to an audiobook during your commute, you could get through, you know, a book every two weeks, which is amazing. And, that, and that's so reading. You do. This is the other thing. It's like people, I've, I've had this conversation on here before, actually with a guy who ran a library, uh, a, ran a library in Chicago. He's now in New York <clears throat> and he has severe dyslexia. And so he listens to his books. He runs the library and people are like, how can you run a library and not read a book? He goes, I'm, I am reading. I'm, I'm getting the content just through my ears. It's, it's somehow like, why is it invalidated if he can't like look at it? That's so funny. Yeah, um, no, I love audiobooks. Um and I love reading like Me too. I like I like I like to switch that around. All right, can I can I make you also tell another embarrassing story? Slightly embarrassing oh, story. Sure. Do you Bring know the it. one that <laughs> this is the one when you're uh walking your son Leo to school? Yes. Um so this is <laughs> I so I was on the faculty at Wharton uh in Philly uh before I moved to UCLA, but as a Southern Californian, I am, I love me some sunshine. Um, and so I was quite um, uh, deliberate in deciding where I wanted to spend the rest of my career. So when um, I got the opportunity to um, join the faculty at UCLA, I was like, yes, I want sunshine. And we set it up, my, my husband, who is also like, we worked really hard to both get jobs in sunshine, we had we got a house right next to beautiful UCLA campus, mm-hmm. and my son was at preschool on campus, so I didn't even have to get into a car to commute, and I got to walk my son every day to school from our house, and it's like such an idyllic setting. It's like the birds are singing, the sun is out. It's like a Disneyland scene or a Disney scene. Um, And it was just utter happiness until you pan out and like my son is skipping along until you pan out and like you see me and I'm like charging ahead with a scowl on my face, like thinking again, being in my head, you know, I talked about how we cycle through all of our to-dos and there is such so much in a rush and I'm like charging ahead. I'm like, Leo, you know, hurry up. And he's like skipping along and I'm like, Leo, hurry up. And then at one point he's like, mom, wait, stop. I want to show you something. And I'm like, I don't have time to stop. So I, you know, I keep walking and he's like, mom, real quick. And I turn around and he had his face buried in this bush of like white roses and was sniffing. And before I come, like, I was just in my head. I was like, yelled at him. I'm like, Leo, we don't have time to stop and smell the roses. <laughs> and when I heard those words You're a monster. out of my mouth, I was like, oh, 
my lordy. And I look around, I'm like, did anyone just hear anyone me say that? that? Mortified. Like it was so on the nose, right? Yeah, and yeah. it was as a time and happiness expert, I can't believe it came out of my mouth. And this was like, oh my gosh, I've got to get a sort of con- like pull this in because this is actually, we talk about the role of circumstances. Yeah. These circumstances were perfect. Mm-hmm. My son was noticing them the perfectness of it and enjoying it and soaking it up and stopping to smell the roses. And because I was just in such a hurry, I was being pulled along outside of it. And what, you know, if you took a picture or like video of us walking, you know, just two months before, just after we had moved um, and had sort of set up this wonder, like our first, you know, few months of walking to school, I too was happy because I was noticing I'm, you know, like on the heels of our Philly winters, I'm like, this is amazing. But when we are exposed to even something as joyful and as beautiful and as pleasant as, you know, walking through UCLA's sunny campus day after day, we stop noticing it as much. And this is hedonic adaptation. So when we are exposed to a set of stimuli, again and again, we get used to it. It has less of an effect. It's hedonic, less of an emotional effect. This is good when bad stuff happens, right? Because it allows us to adapt to the bad stuff such that it doesn't have quite as strong of an effect on our emotional well-being. So it makes us resilient. But it's bad when we get so used to these joys that we stop noticing them. And so uh, in Happier Hour, I share some strategies. How do we offset hedonic adaptation such that those joys continue to have an effect? How do I make it so that I notice the flowers and the beautiful smell and the sunshine and my, you know, skipping sun, who I will note is now not, we don't walk to school anymore because now he's at another school. And so had I recognized that that time um, was limited, limited, uh, it's really uh, powerful. And I have this exercise that I have my students do. um, And I absolutely sort of suggest people do. And at the face of it, it sounds actually quite depressing, but it's really powerful is counting the times left that you have to do um, something that you love doing. Um, And so you can sort of reflect back for yourself what, you know, in the last two weeks, what was something that made you feel intense joy? For so many, it's a very sort of mundane, everyday thing. And because it's so everyday, we assume it will continue to happen every day. But if you calculate the times left, you recognize that there it's actually is limited. It's probably Mm -hmm. far more limited than you expect. And so like, on that walk to school with Leo, had I calculated, I would have realized that we were actually only had 20% of our walks to school together on UCLA's campus left. Recognizing that would make me pay attention. It would make me spend the time first. So protect the time for that joy. So, you know, like on those days, not succumbing to like, oh my gosh, if I drive, then it will be faster. So spending the time, Also paying attention during the time and savoring it. So in some of my research, 
we find that when people recognize their time is limited, it makes them enjoy and savor more those ordinary experiences because we realize just how precious they are. Um, so your, your book actually had a pretty f- profound effect on, on me. And actually, there's been a number of, of interviews lately. Russ Roberts has a book called Wild Problems. Uh, he's a University of Chicago economist who runs a, the only liberal arts college in Israel. <clears throat> and part of his thing is, is he's an economist and he's suggesting that wild problems, which are ones like, should I have kids? Should I marry? Can't really be um, answered through science. Because, because the, the rational answer to should you have kids would probably be no with regard to things like money and sad, potential sadness and other stuff. But, mm-hmm. but of course, things like meaning and purpose belong there. Anyway, um, uh, for, for this point, because it happened today, uh, I have been, um, uh, now that the weather's nice, uh, taking a walk midday at, at work. And I work in Old Town, which is very pretty. And it's Wednesday. And I'm like, oh, the farmer's market is in Lincoln Park, not far like where the zoo is. And I'm, I'm going to walk over there. So I, I walked over. It only took me 10 minutes and I got to walk through the booths. And it's like, you know, they, they make these great grilled cheese sandwiches out there. And when I got back, I walked down the hall here with all my buddies and I, like, I work with them. I'm like, hey, why don't on Wednesdays we all walk together to the farmer's market to get lunch? And everyone's like, why don't we do that? Like, we never do that. I'm like, yeah, I think it would be nice. And, you know, and like, and, and so I hopefully will start this new tradition. Or, or it's, it's almost like, a, and you talk about making ritual. Mm-hmm. That, that feels like a, a very easy ritual. Yeah. And tradition. And, it, and that is wonderful because actually, you know, touching back to the time tracking um, insights um, among my students of when they identified whether those activities that they spend their time doing that actually are their happiest. They involve everything of what you just said. One was social connection. So doing it with other folks, being outside, we totally underestimate the emotional boost or well-being sort of happiness boost of being outside without a roof over our head. And yes, it is better when it's sunny. Um, And it is better when you have something pretty to look at, but actually the research shows that, just being outside mm-hmm. has a significant positive effect as well as moving your body. So exercise is good. Yep. And by turning it into a tradition mm-hmm. and you guys even sort of giving a name, like every Wednesday, it, even saying like every Wednesday we do this. And if you actually gave it a name, it would be even better. You could even call it wandering Wednesdays mm-hmm. um, that it makes it special and the, the features of it that are rep- repeating, instead of it being something that you're adapting to and is sort of mindless, it actually becomes a critical feature of the tradition. So you guys know, like, we always take this route and, you know, we uh, do it in this way. Like, there's, yeah. there's such a... It, by calling it a tradition, it makes it special. There's research that shows that families who have holiday traditions are more likely to gather over the holidays and enjoy that time more. Um, relationship partners who have uh, rituals uh, within their relationships, they um, report greater satisfaction in their relationships. And what it is, is about making sort of times that you spend together a special um, so I love your idea and I'm 
I'm excited that you guys are going to be doing this when Wandering Wednesday. I know, me too. And I am going to call it Wandering Wednesday. I already wrote that down. Okay. <laughs> so in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but I was really very intrigued by um, when you talk about the time of your life and getting older. And, and of course, you know, I'm 55, I think, and I work with a bunch of young people and, and this is a, a topic of conversation. And I, I want to give two quotes and then t- talk about it. Um, you say, quote, as we get older, however, we start experiencing happiness more as a calm peacefulness, a quieter, more serene and contented feeling, end quote. And I can say that for sure. My my thing, it, it, like as a younger person, I was on the go. That's the kind of person I was. I longed to sit in my garden with my book, you know, and my wife and I do that. We sit in the garden and read and listen to music. Yeah. And then you say, quote, these results suggest that when a 20 year old and a 60 year old express feeling happy. They're probably feeling quite different things. Recognizing this can increase our emotional understanding of others and ourselves across ages, end quote. That's profound. That's a profound insight in terms of this, this ongoing like, conversation of not understanding the generations. And it's like, yeah, because they, they might mean different things over very consequential things like what it means to be happy. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's, it's been very informative, like it's, it's been helpful since we identified that within the data and the data source was actually really, uh, I don't know if we would have come to it otherwise. And it was um, through September's We Feel Fine. And what it was doing was basically crawling the blogosphere. And anytime someone wrote, I feel or I'm feeling, it could capture in real time what people were feeling. And so mm. it would pick up on, you know, like political events. You could see the mood changing. You could also see who was um, reporting different feelings. Um, when Obama got elected, you saw expressions of hope um, and optimism being expressed more. And I was so interested in this data set because I was like, oh, expressions of happiness. What can we learn when about people expressing happiness? And what you saw were that there's these like two different clusters of expressions of happiness. It's like, I feel so happy and excited, or I feel so happy from the weekend after like a calm and you know peaceful time. And so from that, looking at millions of expressions of emotion and with the bloggers, um, uh, demographic uh, information, we could identify who was feeling what. And from that, we saw that age influenced the type of happiness that was being expressed. So younger people were significantly more likely to express excited happiness. Um, as people got older, you saw that people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and on and actually was like an increasing effect, more greater expression of that sort of serene, calm contentment. And it is helpful because so often in terms of judgment, like the thing that I think it helps us do is reduce our judgment, both of our future selves, and then which ends up being our current selves. Like when I was, you know, like 30 and all of a sudden, like, as a mid twenties, I was, you know, like, oh my gosh, kill me if I you ever see me like, you know, on a couch on a Saturday night watching a movie. Like that is so boring. It's a judgment of like mm-hmm. that is not happy because that's not making me happy now. But then, you know, mid thirties where that is utter delight 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right. Of, like my glass of wine on the couch, like turning on a movie that I'm like really excited to see that is utter happiness. And I will say, um, as I've gotten older, it's just those calm, quiet moments. That is where I increasingly find joy. And I, what I don't want is for people to judge themselves based off of them remembering their, you know, younger self. And also as we interact with people of different ages of increasing that understanding and empathy and recognizing that it's not just sort of what you're feeling, the term happy, but it's how um, it's being expressed. And I think with that greater understanding, even becomes comes greater happiness. Yeah, and there's uh, there's a spectrum. I mean, I'm I, I'm not just doing that. I'm also going to go see Elvis Costello concert in August. That I'm thrilled. Like that that that's going to make me happy too. Um, all right, uh, we always end with a yes and story. You got one? Yes. Um, writing. A I, I can't wait. I, I was like, I'm very excited. <laughs> no, you this. already got my like really embarrassing ones. This honestly, writing a book would mm-hmm. was a no and continue to be a no. And it should have been a no because I have young kids. I didn't have time. And the reason I said yes, finally, was uh, because I was like, in actually identifying like what drives me, what gives me energy. And, uh, and it is sharing and disseminating knowledge about what people makes people happy. And when I shifted, I was like, oh, actually, this is something worth making the time for. Then I've done it. And it is so I am so happy. And I am still, you know, my schedule is full, but it is fulfilling. And I'm so happy that I did it. The book is called Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. Cassie Holmes, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks so much for having me. It was such a treat. The Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.